I'm very delighted to see you all and delighted that there is so much interest still in Homeric um, literature. So, one of the most successful movies of 2004 was Troy, directed by Wolfgang Peterson and starring Brad Pitt as Achilles. Troy made more than $497 million worldwide and was the eighth highest grossing film of 2004. The rolling credits proudly claim that the movie is inspired by the ancient Greek Homeric epic Iliad. Now this was for classical scholars a very exciting claim. There have been blockbuster movies telling the story of Troy before and uh, notably the 1956 glamorous blockbuster Helen of Troy starring Rosanna Podesta and a television two-episode miniseries which came out in 2003 directed by John Kent Harrison. But there's never been a feature film which announced such a strong relationship to the Iliad, the greatest classical action heroic poem. So the movie was eagerly anticipated by those of us who still teach Homer for a living because Paterson is a very respected director who's made some serious and important films. These range from De Consequence, The Consequence, a very radical and brave story of homosexual love in 1977, to In the Line of Fire and Air Force One, both political action thrillers starring Clint Eastwood and Harrison Ford, respectively. The Perfect Storm in 2000 showed that cataclysmic natural disaster and special effects spectacle were certainly part of Paterson's repertoire. But his most celebrated film, before Troy was probably Das Boot, The Boat of 1981, the story of the crew of a German U-boat during the Battle of the Atlantic in 1941. The finely judged and politically impartial portrayal of ordinary men caught up in the terror and tedium of war suggested that Paterson, if anyone, might be able to do some justice to the Homeric depiction of the Trojan War in the Iliad. And the anticipation was heightened when we learned that Paterson studied classics at his gymnasium in Germany. And in an interview, he's actually said that while he personally found studying the Latin and ancient Greek grammars tiresome, he relished the literature, the fun part. He particularly liked, and I quote, the epic stories with plenty of gruesome action and heroes of all stripes, which proved enough rope in the heart of this 14-year-old with plenty of fantasy and energy to spare. Achilles was definitely my hero. Now, Paterson used a script written by David Benioff. Now, Benioff has subsequently achieved enormous fame and fortune as co-creator and executive producer of the HBO smash hit series Game of Thrones. I like to think that the very idea of epic-scale warfare with warring kingdoms and beautiful maidens came to him while adapting the Iliad for Paterson. Benioff has some literary credentials. He studied English literature at Dartmouth and Samuel Beckett at master's level at Trinity College Dublin. And he certainly succeeded in creating a stirring enough story out of the Iliad. The principal change is that Agamemnon's motive for invading Troy is explicitly stated 
to be a desire to expand his empire, enrich himself and acquire a foothold in the landmass we now call Turkey. And this seems fine to me. The self-aggrandising streak in Agamemnon's character is already present very clearly in the Iliad. He's very unpleasant. And the economic forces behind the real Greek colonisation um, of Anatolia certainly justify putting this motivation, this imperialist mo motivation, on a par with the desire simply to avenge the insult constituted by Helen's defection to Troy. And the movie also contains the political undercurrent of the depiction of the Greek side in the Iliad, where there's a marked tension between the meritocratic values embodied in Achilles, the best warrior, and in the regular soldiers who do all the work on the battlefield, and on the other hand, the aristocratic values expressed by Agamemnon, who says, I am king of kings, and I deserve much greater reward and greater credit than my subordinates because of it. Now, although the movie doesn't give us the most tense political moment in the whole Iliad, which is when the common soldier Thersites almost succeeds in leading a mutiny, the altercations in the movie between Agamemnon and Achilles do transmit in the movie something of the class-based anger crystallised in the original poem, especially book two. Now, the desire for a realistic plausibility, which would make the movie work emotionally for a 21st century audience, also seems to me to justify the more almost complete excision of the gods as speaking characters intervening in and directing the action. The exception, the sole exception, is Julie Christie as Achilles' mother, Thetis. But actually her divinity is not at all emphasised. She might just be an eccentric druidess who likes to live by the sea. Now, modern audiences, I'm afraid, just can't take seeing actors dressed up as Olympian gods seriously enough to make a psychologically convincing movie. As children, we may all have adored the divinities in Don Chaffrey's Jason and the Argonauts, 1963, especially Honor Blackman as Hera. And the special effects were by the peerless master of pre-digital animation, Ray Harryhausen. But in a movie aiming at a serious, even tragic tone, I do believe including the gods as characters would have been disastrous. But my tolerance of Benioff's rewriting of the Iliad wears thin when it comes to his treatment of women. When Achilles, Brad Pitt, is too busy worrying about his paramour Briseis to devote himself to armed combat, Odysseus, Sean Bean, remarks cryptically to him in a suitable Yorkshire accent, women have a way of complicating things. Unfortunately, women scarcely complicate the plot of the movie at all. It does doff its cap in the direction of an emancipated third millennial female audience by allowing Briseis to stab Agamemnon in the neck. Her action is presented as a feisty post-feminist refusal to be complicit in her own victimhood when the brutal patriarchal overlord is about to take her captive. But the presentation of the other women is, frankly, embarrassing. The Homeric poets did it so much better. Helen, a dignified and tragic figure in the Iliad, possesses not one iota of mysterious power, 
nor is she allowed to regret having left her little daughter back in Sparta, which is her great tragedy. Cassandra, surely one of the most compelling figures in ancient mythology, is deleted, or rather amalgamated into Briseis, and so is Chryseis, where Benioff had the opportunity to give us several young women struggling in different ways to survive a brutal patriarchy. He refused even to try. But worst of all is the deletion of old Queen Hecuba, whose presentation in the Iliad is gut-wrenching. She's given intense encounters with Hector, has lost all her children, bar two, her sons, expresses violent hatred of Achilles, has a painful, vicious argument with her husband, and leads the city's women in their temple rituals. She should absolutely be sitting by Peter O'Toole's prior in all the throne sequences. But Benioff just couldn't cope with a post-menopausal woman and her monumental emotions. I always ask my students who they would have cast as Hecuba, and Vanessa Redgrave and Helen Mirren are the two popular favourites. Troy variously succeeds and fails in reproducing the aesthetic and moral power of the Iliad, and I'll return to that later. But how does it fare in making what is a narrative poem, which works through our ears, into a visual and material reconstruction of physical humans engaged in physical combat and interaction with their environment during a war in Asia Minor in the late Bronze Age? The Greeks in the Iliad, which told the story of the Siege of Troy, are Mycenaeans. They take their name from the civilization which had one of its centres at Mycenae in the Peloponnese. Their society lasted from about 1600 BCE to about 1200 or 1100. They were great seafarers. They certainly raided the islands and townships of the eastern Aegean and what is now the western coast of Turkey. And they were taking their first steps in what was soon to become the wholesale colonisation of the area. The conflict at Troy is certainly connected to real history in that it reflects the ambition of these early Greeks to expand eastwards. Our understanding of the Mycenaeans has changed irrevocably since the, their archaeological rediscovery, which has been ongoing since the mid-19th century. Tremendously exciting for classicists. Not only have Mycenaean palaces been excavated at several of the sites where we predicted they would be, Thebes, Therachne, Tiryns, a few miles from Sparta, Pylos, Mycenae and Crete. It's also been discovered that the Mycenaeans had writing in the script known as Linear B, and this was in a recognisable forerunner of the classical Greek language. The Mycenaeans definitely spoke Greek, and they used writing to make lists of food, temple gifts, workers and sailors, but apparently not to write down poetry. Now, the earliest real ancient Greek voice we can hear speaks to us, not from Athens, not from Sparta, not from Mycenae, but from Pylos on the west of the Peloponnese, near a Mycenaean palace. The elderly Nestor in the Odyssey and the Iliad, eloquently paid by John Shrapnel in the movie, was king of Pylos, and it's wonderful that we can actually visit a palace at Pylos that's basically could easily be Nestor's. And that earliest Greek voice we can hear was recorded on a clay tablet between 1450 and 1400 
B, C, E, and there it is. All the linear, that's the earliest Greek voice we can hear. All the linear B tablets were inscribed with signs drawn from left to right on a malleable grey clay. But the, sometimes the tablets appear brown or red, depending on the heat of the fire that in each case accidentally baked and preserved them. The tablets are mostly the size and shape of a small palm leaf. And that first voice from Pylos resounds from the rubbish dump into which it was discarded all those centuries ago, near another Mycenaean palace, slightly inland, at a site named Eclina. And the scribe's actual words on this tablet are, in themselves, that exciting. One side records the last part of a man's name, followed by the numeral sign for one. He seems to head a list of personnel. The other side records part of a word related to manufacturing. And this mundane clay object, discovered in 2011, actually allows us to push back the use of writing uh, to record the Greek language into the 15th century BCE. Now in Crete, which was the main stronghold of this Mycenaean culture, away from the Greek peninsula, our understanding of the early Greek speakers is rather more complicated. Long before the Mycenaeans had begun building their palace complexes on the mainland, a people whose name we don't know, but whom we conventionally call Minoan, after the mythical king Minos, had established a similar civilization on his island. Minoan civilization reached its apex in the two and a half centuries between 1700 and about 1450. And the ethnicity of the Minoans is disputed. They spoke another language altogether, and it was almost certainly not even Indo-European. They also used writing, a script we call Linear A, but that hasn't, still hasn't been satisfactorily deciphered. And although the palace at Knossos, excavated by Sir Arthur Evans in the first years of the 20th century, is by far the most famous, there are several other important Minoan buildings on Crete. But in the mid-15th century, these were all destroyed by fire. And Greek speakers, very likely from the Mycenaean palaces of the mainland, people like Agamemnon, took over the administration of Minoan Crete. Thucydides suggests that the Mycenaean Empire had indeed had a very large navy in the Bronze Age, the late Bronze Age, um, at the time when he, Thucydides, thought it was ruled by Agamemnon, who sailed to Troy. So when the Greeks make their entrance into Cretan history, they're already absorbing, if not rapaciously expropriating, the achievements of an earlier civilization. They were very good at this. The reason we can call them Greeks is that they used their own distinctive language. We will never know exactly how much the mainland Mycenaeans borrowed from the Minoans, nor the precise process by which Greece became the language of power on Crete. The issue is much debated by archaeologists in the context of the magnificent frescoes of Santorini. In 1967, the archaeologist Spiridon Marinatos, who wanted to discover what had destroyed the Minoans, began digging near a farming village called Akrotiri on the uh, southern coast of Thera. And the results were astounding. Buried under metres of volcanic ash, she discovered an entire town which she called the Pompeii of the Bronze Age. If you go, you could walk along the route of the paved ancient street that led into the centre. The residents lived in impressive villas 
Some with three storeys, bathrooms, plumbing, linked to a public drainage system. Workshops and larders containing rich finds of pottery lined the streets. But the um, houses downstairs seem to have been dominated by men um, and utilitarian in function. But upstairs, the domestic living rooms, perhaps mainly the domain of women, boasted elegant furniture, plaster walls painted with some of the most famous of all visual images from antiquity, the Akrotiri frescoes. Those from the West House have such a maritime focus that it used to be assumed it belonged to a rich sailor and it was called the House of the Admiral. It contains several frescoes, one a woman with large eyes and earrings, sometimes thought to be a priestess, um, but the richly painted panels of room five make it the most famous room in the Aegean. Two large panels depict youths naked and carrying blue and yellow fish. But around the upper part of the three surviving walls runs the border, which has frescoes on a smaller scale. And the third, the southern mural, shows a seascape with towns and ships sailing between them. I gasped when I first saw this as an undergraduate. The splashing dolphins, the seven ships propelled by neat ranks of oars and oarsmen, the rhythmic rowing is conveyed almost inaudibly to the imagined shouts of the standing figures at the stern. The smaller town on the left portrays an island scene exactly like the images which reading about Odysseus's homeland on Ithaca have always engendered in my mind. Craggy mountains form the backdrop to a landscape where wild animals hunt each other and a shepherd converses over a stream, I think in Greek, with a man of the town. Their clothes are quite rough, other people stand at the harbour watching the ships sail off to the larger city and the scene's full of this movement and energy and its topic is very precisely the boundary between life on land and life on the sea. Or rather, the lack of any real boundary between them existing in the ancient Mediterranean islander's mind. And the narrative storytelling in this picture is deeply reminiscent of the narrative style of Homeric epic. The frescoes of Pylos are less well-preserved, but their scenes were similarly action-packed and full of Homeric storytelling. One scene shows warriors fighting men dressed in animal skins. Now, every year that passes shows just how our momentous for our understanding of the Mycenaeans and the Iliad and later Greeks was the decipherment of the Near B. Finalised in the early 1950s by Michael Ventris and John Chadwick, who'd built far more than they admitted on the earlier work of a woman called Alice Cober and a man called Emmett L. Bennett Jr. The decipherment has always allowed us to listen directly to the Mycenaeans themselves, where before we only had excavations and artefacts, we have records of the thoughts which actually took shape inside of Mycenaean Greek heads, which also made the story that we get in Homer. We even know something of the Mycenaeans' names, including that of a simple goat herd at Pylos called Philios. 58 names in Linear B are the same as or similar to the names of those warriors in Homer. Astoundingly, some real Mycenaean Greek men bore the names of the top heroes on the Greek and Trojan side. Real Greek men were called Achilles and Hector. Antenor, Glaucus, Tros, Xanthus, Deucalion, Theseus, Tantalus and Orestes. There are real people called these names in Linear B. 
Sadly, the name Nestor has not yet appeared. Um, this is sad for me. Um, the only proper name it may be possible to associate with a historical figure known from other sources, the only Pylos man, is the last king of Pylos, whose name was something like Echelaos, held by the people, holder of the people. It's enormously suggestive. This happens to be the name of the traditional coloniser of the island of Lesbos, far across the Aegean Sea near Turkey. What sort of religion was practised by these seafaring people with their Homeric names and squadrons of female slaves from overseas listed in Linear B? They went and got women from islands like Lesbos. By and large, the gods who turned up in Linear B are exactly the ones we'd have predicted from the Iliad. Poseidon was worshipped in reality at Pylos and Knossos, may even have been the senior god of the Mycenaeans. He was the deity of water and the spouse of Mother Earth. His name means Earth's husband. And Linear B offerings to Poseidon include a jar of honey, dedicated to him as Earth Shaker. And besides Poseidon and Earth, named recipients of offerings in the Mycenaean tablets are the ones we'd expected to be honoured by any pagan Greeks, Zeus, Hera, Athena, Artemis. The offerings they receive are rich and varied, cattle, pigs, sheep, wheat and barley, oil and wine, figs, cheese, honey and spice tablets. Other sorts of offerings include sheepskins, wool and a golden cup, as well as at least one woman. Women do seem to have played an important part in religion, as they do at Troy. They are priestesses, key bearers to the temple. The Mycenaean Greeks only begin to look really different from their later descendants when we look at their monolithic political structures. And that's what we'd expect from Homer. By the 8th century, when ancient Greece emerged as a constellation of independent city-states on islands and lining the shores of the Mediterranean, the desirability of living in a strictly hierarchical system under a powerful hereditary monarch was already being questioned, led to Athenian democracy. But the Mycenaeans still lived under a monarchical system, as we can see for their term for king, Wanax, which in Homer became Anax. The Wanax has some kind of lieutenant or second in command, probably a military officer. The situation seems to have been approaching an emergency politically at Pylos, which was preparing for an attack when it collapsed. Men were being distributed round local leaders. There was even a royal council called something like a Gerousia, implying it had a council of elders, which we also see traces of in Homer. There are words in Linear Me meaning slave man and slave woman. Some of them are slaves of the gods. But regardless of their status, it's clear most Mycenaeans did a very great deal of back-breaking work. They were goldsmiths, boilers, doctors, bronzesmiths, cutlers, bowmakers, shepherds, goat herds, huntsmen, woodcutters, masons and carpenters, exactly the personnel that we find in the Odyssey. It's not surprising that shipbuilding was already a distinct craft. Naudomos. Same as our word naval. The women in the palaces carded wool, spun and wove, just like Penelope, and men and women worked flax, which was also used for equipping ships with sails and fishermen with nets. We get lots of female bath attendants. The heroes always get bathed by the maidservants in Homer and serving maids. 
The most famous Mycenaean palace of all is, of course, the one at Mycenae itself, the Lion Gate. Mycenae was built on an Acropolis, the citadel surrounded by massive Cyclopean walls. One of its Homeric epithets is sturdily built. But the fabulous treasures which Heinrich Schliemann found in its graves, and which are now on display in Athens Archaeological Museum, more than explained the other Homeric epithet for Mycenae, rich in gold. It was in the 1870s that Schliemann conducted the first excavations at Mycenae, systematic excavations, with the eyes fastened upon him after his sensational finds at Troy. And some of the visual images from Mycenae have virtually come to define the Bronze Age in our imagination, especially the Lion Gate, and also the Golden Burial Mask, especially this one from Grave Circle A, which Schliemann liked to think revealed the contours of the face of Agamemnon. And Brian Cox, who so is the best actor in Troy by far, who plays an unbelievably thugly and vicious and selfish and powerful Dundee Agamemnon, looks a bit like that. <laughs> the whole complex at Pylos was built on an acropolis with steep enough sides to deter assault and a long wall on one side. It was constructed out of mud, bricks and rubble, with wooden pillars to support the ceilings. It had more than 100 individual rooms. It sounds very like the Trojan Palace. But it's in the main building, in the centre, which we got the clear psychological centre of the complex. And the visitor who arrived at Nestor's two-storey palace, just as Telemachus does, a decade after the Trojan War, in the Odyssey, was taken through a series of ever more stately rooms before he arrived in the presence of that king. He would have first passed through doors on the eastern side of the building and entered an opposing entrance hall. Um, the visitor next entered a court, but won't have minded if he was kept waiting, because it opened into two adjacent rooms and benches to sit on with plenty of special holders for wine jars while you waited. When summoned to the royal presence, the visitor next passed through a porch into the vestibule and only then into the large square throne room in which the plastered walls were decorated with dazzling, dazzling, dazzling frescoes. The throne was at one side. In the centre, there was this massive circular hearth, more than four diameters wide. And it was designed to make a statement, perhaps a ritual one, and it will have illuminated those gorgeous frescoes with flickering firelight. The royal family enjoyed high luxury. In this house, as in Nestor's Pylos and throughout the Iliad in all the tents, wine flowed abundantly. The excavators were really astonished by the several thousand drinking vessels they found in the west side of the main building. There was lots of olive oil, a grand terracotta bath, and um, evidence of proper toilet facilities. Now, there's just one apparent reference to writing in the Iliad, but it's ambiguous. In the Iliad, we hear in the past that the Mycenaean king Proteus was angry with his young best guest Bellerophon, whom he believes to have attempted to rape his wife. So he sends Bellerophon off to his father-in-law's palace with a tablet engraved with dread signs for the father-in-law over the GNC in Lycia, in southwest Turkey, and these dread signs, poor Bellerophon turned up with a letter he couldn't read that said, kill this boy. 
Now, the word for signs could mean either pictograms, it's Sameta, where we get semiotics from. It could mean either pictograms of some kind, like Linear B, or some kind of magical symbols. I enjoy getting my undergraduates to do some diagrams. But even though the Mycenaean Greeks um, don't seem to have written down their epic songs, they did have poetry and minstrels, as we can see from early frescoes and statuettes. The Iliad and the Odyssey, as we can read them today, date from rather later, the mid-8th century BCE. They were written down in the middle of that century in the newly, newly adopted phonetic alphabet, which the Greeks had borrowed and expanded from their clever neighbours, the Phoenicians. But we can tell from several of these, um, several elements in these 8th century epics that they preserve some really ancient verse material that does go back to Mycenaean times, tremendously, tingly exciting. And we know this because Greek epic is in a distinctive metre, the dactylic hexameter, which consists of lines of basically six feet, or emphases. And these lines create a rolling, insistent rhythm. Not that one. <laughs> which Victorians like to imitate in English, as in this translation, listen carefully, of line eight of the Iliad. Who of the great gods caused these heroes to wrangle and combat? Here are the two opening lines of J. Henry Dart's Victorian hexameter translation of the Iliad. Sing, divine muse, sing the implacable wrath of Achilles, heavy with death and with woe to the banded sons of Achaea. Now, every line is in this same metre, and there are no subdivisions into stanzas. Poetry, which is originally produced without the aid of writing, is qualitatively very different than work from the works of literate poets. And the distinctive features of Homeric verse derive from that oral nature. Lists, repetitions, mirror scenes, and the use of formulae. Now, a formula sounds oppertingly clinical. It's just the name given to marrying of two or more words in a recurrent rhythmic cluster. If you know anything about modern rap, this is instantly recognisable technique, clusters of words that you put together. Rosy-fingered dawn, for example, or thus spoke swift-footed Achilles. And the form of some of the words show the verse lines had to have been first composed before the letter W, digamma, fell out of use, which was very early. The Mycenaeans used it, they had a W, but the Greeks who later wrote down the Iliad didn't. The Greek for wine, oinos, was originally much more like ours, it was oinos. And the Greek for Troy, Ilium, was originally willion. Secondly, the predominance of bronze as the metal of which weapons are made in the Iliad, rather than iron or steel, shows that it's Mycenaean roots. And thirdly, certain customs. In the Homeric epics, brides are purchased with lots of cattle, whereas by the classical era, they were given away with dowries. In Homer, heroes are still cremated, and we have several cremations in the movie, rather than buried. Now, the film did actually try quite hard to make the objects and costumes look plausibly Bronze Age, although there were some serious howlers from this perspective. The villagers who lived around Troy owned llamas, which actually didn't make it out of the Americas until the 16th century. There is no port of Sparta, as indicated in a caption. Sparta is some ways inland in the Peloponnese. The infantry used pikes, which weren't used on a large scale until Philip of Macedon in the 4th century. 
The shields and helmets are deeply anachronistic, being modelled on examples from at least 500 years uh, later. Coins <laughs> are placed on dead warriors' eyes in the movie, but coinage was not invented in the Bronze Age. One of the gifts given to Agamemnon by a vassal king is a red-figure vase. These are a product of the 5th century BC, again a half a millennium later than the world of the Iliad. And when the Greek leaders are lining up to offer gifts to Agamemnon, we see one of these very clearly. Now, Homer's Iliad, poem about Willion, Troy, created for the Aegean Greeks, west or east, a picture of their obstreperous warrior forefathers, which we're still enjoying in the forms not only of Brad Pitt's Achilles, but Sean Bean's Odysseus, Brendan Gleeson's Menelaus, and the inimitable Brian Cox as Agamemnon. The Iliad provided them with a detailed narrative of a voyage over the Aegean to Asia of Greek-speaking men in the heroic age, outraged by the insult to their reputation when one of their wives, Helen, ran away with the Trojan Paris. But Homer, by not calling them Hellenes, um, made the story sound archaic. He deliberately used the ancient tribal names Achaeans, Argives, Danaans. The name Hellas still only designates one small district in Thessaly in Homer. The word Panhellenes occurs just once in Homer, but probably only refers to the population of a tiny bit of northwest Greece. What is certain, though, is that the Iliad provided the charter myth of Greek ethnicity for 12 centuries subsequently, and possibly until now. The triumph of Christianity and the New World Order in the late 4th century sent it slightly underground. It provides a list of the communities who in the mid-8th century regarded themselves as being united because they could enjoy poetry in Greek and had long ago fought together in the Siege of Troy. Reciting the Iliad in the 8th century was to recite the list of all the other Greeks. The sense of Greek identity was in the same century consolidated by the invention of the Olympic Games, which you had to be a Greek speaker to be eligible to compete. And the Iliad offers in its second book a list of all the Greek-speaking peoples which formed the very core of the Greek sense of self at that time. But it's not structured as a map or a list of places or tribes or even dynastic families. It takes the form, because they're Greeks, of a catalogue of ships. Get lots of ships in the movie. The catalogue of Achaean ships in the poem enacts a roll call designed to suit the 8th century imagination of the 28 contingents of Greeks in a thousand ships who participated in the Trojan War five or six hundred years before. The Greeks came from the mainland strongholds, Pylos, Lacedaemon, Sparta, Mycenae, Argos, Athena and Boeotia, although no northern districts, and several islands including Ithaca, Rhodes and Crete. Now, this list has obviously been scrutinised by classicists, historians and archaeologists seeking a straightforward account of Mycenaean populations, but that reading will never succeed. The catalogue may contain much older inherited Mycenaean material, but it was given its present form after the Greek migrations to Asia, and so that must interfere with the way that it portrays the distant past. By the 8th century, and Homer, or the Homeric poets, Many Greeks lived in new settlements on the Asiatic seaboard, and that is where the relationship of the social geography of the Iliad and that of the 8th century epic poets becomes really confusing. 
The Iliad's list of forces mustered to defend Troy includes the Bronze Age residents of the, all the areas in Asia Minor in which the Greeks later built cities, but describes them as they were retrospectively visualised in the 8th century. The largest contingent by far is furnished by the Trojans and their immediate neighbours, the Dardanians. And they have the same culture, religion and protocols as the Greeks. The Phrygians, Lydians and Thracians, who live further away, or in the northern part of Asia Minor across the Phellespont, all fight for Troy. Now this raises the problem of the location of Troy, which according to the movie was filmed in Malta and Mexico, and whether the Trojan War actually happened. Now, there's no contemporary historical documentation of Homer's Trojans, except in a controversial handful of references in tablets inscribed by the Hittites, who from the 18th to the 12th centuries BCE ran a massive empire, approximately coextensive with modern Turkey. In the movie, Agamemnon is concerned that the Hittites are going to try and wage war on Troy. Uh, this is Benioff's invention. And he wants to take possession of the city before that happens. But there is no suggestion of this in the Iliad. Hittite tablets do refer to places called Wailusa and Tarawissa, which may well be Wilion and Troia, respectively. In one precious Hittite text, known as the Tawagalawa letter, uh, there may even be a mention of the Trojan War. Written by a Hittite king, probably in the 13th century, it's addressed to a king of the Achiyawa, perhaps the Achaeans, and refers to an incident in the past now resolved where the Achiyawa were involved in hostile military operations. One of the allies of Troy in the poetic tradition was Eurypylus, and in the Odyssey, he is said to be leader of the Kerteoi, who may well be the Hittites. So the Hittites' sort of faint ghost memory seems to get into the Homeric poems. The archaeological evidence is absolutely tantalising. The Persian king Xerxes, the Greek Alexander the Great, and the Roman Julius Caesar all went to pay homage at Troy. Alexander visited Achilles' tomb. They identified it, we think, with the ruins of the deserted settlement they could see at what is now called Hisalic in the Dardanelles. But archaeologists today distinguish between many levels of occupation on the site. The two levels which have most often been identified with the Troy of the Iliad are technically known as Troy 7A, 15th to 13th, sorry, Troy 6H, 15th to 13th centuries BCE, and Troy 7A, 13th to 12th centuries. Troy 6H, which had imposing bastions and sloping walls, was destroyed in the mid-13th century. And this can be made to correspond with the assumed date of the Trojan War. But actually, trying to fit the story told in the Iliad absolutely minutely to the 13th century is probably not the best way to understand it. The story told in the Iliad is how the Greeks of 500 years later liked to imagine their past. It's like us making a movie about King Arthur and all of his um, uh, warriors as we imagine early England. If we knew more about life in the Ionian cities of Asia in the 10th and 9th centuries BCE, 
we would be in a much better position to understand why it was amongst the Greeks that the cultural and intellectual miracle was soon afterwards to take place during the archaic period between the 8th, between the 8th and 6th centuries. Cultural interaction with the ancient peoples they encountered in the East must have played a crucial role. Since we have no written records of their experiences, only this memory in the epics, it's impossible to speculate. But relationships with the Carians, the inhabitants of the area around Miletus and speakers of an Indo-European language, seem to have been cooperative and involved into marriage. It's Bodrum, if you go down to Halicarnassus. The Lycians um, um, and the inhabitants of Miletus seem to have spoken Greek with an audible, uh, sorry, the Greeks in Lycia and Miletus spoke Greek with an audible Carian accent. And they must have been very impressive, the Lycians, to judge from the fight they put up when the Persians attacked their city of Xanthos in about 540 BC. And Sarpedon, one of the most attractive leaders in the Iliad, is from Lycia, and he's notably belligerent. It may even have been from the Lycians that the Greeks learned to worship Apollo, who has not turned up in the near bee, since the god's Homeric epithet Lycian, wolf-like or Lycian, suggests. And the only two figures who pray to Apollo in the Iliad are on the Trojan side, the priest Chryses and the Lycian hero Glaucos, who says the god Apollo lives in Lycia. And from the Phrygian mother goddess Martar, mother, who had connections with an even more ancient Hittite goddess. The Greeks acquired some of the attributes of their goddess mother, or Sibylle, her lions and her kettle drums. And from the Luvians, they certainly borrowed the worship of stones to represent gods, bytils, which are often fragments of asteroids. But at some point between 800 and 750 BCE, Greek culture changed forever. Greek speakers borrowed the phonetic signs used by those clever Phoenicians to represent consonants. The Greeks added extra signs to indicate vowels, and they used them to write down in Greek their already canonical, orally transmitted authors, including um, poets that they gave names of Homer and Hesiod to. In inscribing them, finally writing them down, the poets, scribes, perhaps individuals, may have been in that club, in that team, called Homer and Hesiod. They ornamented the language and they lent the poems much better structure and unity. The classical Greeks were already aware that the Iliad was aesthetically vastly superior even to other Greek epic poems because it is not loosely episodic. It tells just 40 days of the war at Troy from the beginning of Achilles' anger with Agamemnon and his new anger with Hector. It is about the wrath of Achilles, but the poets of the Iliad beautifully did it in a compressed way, which meant that we went backwards and forwards in time, all the way from the origins of the Trojan War with the competition over the uh, Paris and the goddesses and the apple, you know, many, many years ago, all the way forward proleptically to the fall of Troy, which hasn't happened yet, and the death of Achilles, we discuss, 
and indeed what men in future days will come to think of it. And the Greeks knew how good it was. Other inherited material is also adapted into it. Heroic lays about heroes, proverbs and maxims, and it's carefully shaped to express 18th century concerns and social values. In writing down these poems in these wonderful aesthetic unity, these uh, great unified forms, the Odyssey is just as good in its, its perfect boxing and, and echoes and, and, and uh, use of time. The Greeks, newly empowered by Phoenician technology, invented themselves as their collective past. And this is where Benioff, simply the medium of cinema, needed to be in far, far more subtle screenplay writers' hands to anything like come near the aesthetic power of that unified 40 days, which allows us to look backwards and forwards to uh, causes and consequences. Benioff just cannot do this narrative heroic um, epic for the ancient Greeks was simply a far more sophisticated art form than the Hollywood action thriller. Now, how should we visualise the audiences of these poems at around the time when they were first written down? The epics themselves provide several pictures of bards in action. Phemius, Odysseus's minstrel in Ithaca, is already singing about the Trojan War and plays at banquets to entertain aristocrats and reduces Penelope, whose husband has not come home from the war, to tears. Demodocus in Phaeacia performs to mark the climax of a day of athletics competitions. In the Iliad, Achilles himself is a minstrel. He whiles away his self-exile from the battlefield at Troy, strumming a lyre and singing. I thought that was a lost opportunity for Brad Pitt. But the picture perhaps closely corresponds to the performance to which most Greeks had access in the 8th to 6th centuries, and that is related to another text also attributed to Homer. It's a hymn, a beautiful hymn, to Apollo of Delos, the tiny central Aegean island, now uninhabited, where Apollo, along with his mother Leto and twin sister Artemis, received one of his most important cults. The island, which near, lies near the very centre of the circle of the Cyclades, the circular islands, the Cyclades, was the traditional site of the birth of the god. And from as early as the 9th century, we know that Ionian Greeks, so the Greeks of southeast Turkey and of Athens, we know that they were meeting there to dedicate offerings to him and his sister Artemis in the famous sanctuary and hear performances of poetry there. That is the sort of place you would have heard performances of Homer. And it's from the 8th century that much of the earliest evidence dates for the Panhellenic sanctuaries belonging to all the Hellenes in a neutral spaces like Olympia, Delphi, Nemea and the Isthmus. And they had musical contests at all the ancient games, as well as athletics ones, which as something of a culture vulture, I would very much like us to bring those back to the Olympics, that you also have singing competitions and lyre-playing competitions and pipe-playing co and choral dancing competitions, on top of the athletics, of course. The funeral games for Patroclus in the Iliad, book 23, which we don't get in the movie Troy. I think they just thought it would disturb the tragedy if you have a funeral and then loads of guys wrestling. 
but it would have felt evocatively Panhellenic to archaic audiences because the competitors in Iliad Book 23 came, like them, from many different Greek regions and islands. And it's interesting that the foundation myths of all four major festivals with games actually claimed they were associated with funerals. But in the Iliad, the death of Patroclus, Achilles' oldest and dearest friend, and in the Iliad, as in Troy, their homosexual relations have been toned down. I thought Benioff missed another trick there. But it has a much light-hearted aspect. The Iliad gave the Greeks a way to think about the exciting aspects of war, the mustering of armies, the clanging of armour. I think when the great heroes like Achilles and Diomedes on the Greek side go on their extraordinary, what's called an aristai, which means display of bravery, that they, um, I think you'd often had Greek audiences not weeping, but cheering as each Trojan bit the dust. Um, but the audience, despite that, is never allowed to forget this excitement comes at a terrible price. In episode after episode, strong, sympathetic characters enunciate their emotional pain. The Iliad shows us young men dying on the battlefield and being lamented by parents and widows. And it shows the last parting of Hector from his wife and little baby, Andromache and Astyanax. We do get that in the movie. It shows the elderly Priam and his supposed enemy, Achilles, weeping together, the enemies, over their respective losses. It foreshadows the extreme situations and moral crises of Athenian tragedy in the dilemma of Achilles, who had to choose between dying young or gloriously, and gloriously or old but in obscurity. And it certainly adumbrates the harsh metaphysical conditions under which mortals in tragedy live utterly vulnerable to the fickle worms of vindictive and childish gods. And in these aspects, the Iliad remains superior to any subsequent adaptation. Please go read it soon.